0: So, Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father in law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you. And what has been done to you in Egypt? And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites—a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. You and all and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, "The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice the Lord our God." But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand, strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and for jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians." So take a moment for me and imagine a person that you've never met before, that's uh, maybe a famous person, or somebody who lives in a different area, uh, that you really admire and might like to meet. And imagine that I told you that last week I had dinner with that particular individual. You might ask me some questions about it. You might say, "Well, what was he or she like? What, what did he or she order? What did you guys talk about? Who took the bill? What kind of car was he or she driving? So you'd want to know questions about what that person was like because I'd met them personally. As we look at this passage today, I'd like for us to consider the question, what is it like to meet with God? And as we consider that question, I think it's going to do a couple different things for us. Number one, it's going to tell us something about the character of God. Because when we meet someone, it shows us what that person is like. I remember in seminary I had a friend and this particular friend uh, worked at, I don't know the organization, but he worked at this organization where they had a lot of speakers and famous people coming in. And he told me how he had met these famous people and he told me about one particular uh, Christian leader or speaker who he had met. And I said, oh that's cool. He said, well he wasn't a very nice person. He used a kind of choice word for this person. I said, what do you mean? He said, well when this person would come, he was—he had some really strict demands. Each time he would come to speak, he would demand that he would only have red Jolly Ranchers ready for him. So all the staff had to go and buy Jolly Ranchers and pick out all the red ones because he demanded that the red ones be there when he got there. Now for him, at least in his perspective, that said something about this leader's character. And while I had seen him from the outside, never met him personally. I had no, didn't know anything about him. He had met him personally, and that kind of changed how he viewed his character. Now, that was a negative view, but as we look at God and how Moses met with God, I think it will tell us something about the character of God. I think it will show us that God is more powerful, more loving, more gracious, more intentional than we could have ever imagined. But I think it will also do something else for us. For some of us, maybe it will kind of confirm our experience. Because as we're walking with God, maybe we've felt like God was speaking to us and God was meeting with us. And as we look at this story and other stories throughout Scripture, uh, maybe we'll have some confirmation that God has met with people in similar ways in the past. And so that will kind of provide an encouragement for us on our own journey. For others of us, maybe our experience would be disproved by what we see in the text today. Because I've had people come up to me and tell me, well, God spoke to me and told me this, or I met with God and God told me this, and I'm scratching my head and I think, are you sure it was God? Are are you sure? You know, sometimes people will come up and say, well, I know that it says in the Bible this or that is wrong, but I talked to God and he says it's okay. It's like, are you sure that was God you were talking to if, you know, he says it clearly in his word? But as we look at this passage and we see how God meets with people in the Scripture, maybe it would disprove our experience. Maybe it caused us to question, well, was that really God or was that just my own thoughts, my own experience? So based upon this passage, I think there's four principles that we can learn about what it means to meet with God. And I think these principles apply not just to this passage, but apply to ways in which God meets with His people throughout Scripture, the first way that God uh, meets with his people is that God often meets his people in unexpected places. Now, certainly in the scriptures, God has met with people uh, later in the tabernacle, in the temple, later on in the church, but oftentimes God meets people on, in unexpected places. In the book of Genesis, it talks about God meeting with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the garden. In Genesis, it talks about Abraham meeting with God at the Oaks of Mamre. God met with Elijah in a still, small voice. He met with Gideon while Gideon was hiding in a winepress, scared for his life. God met with Job in the midst of the most horrible suffering imaginable. God met with Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died. In the New Testament, we see that God met with people as a baby who come to the earth. As Jesus grew up, we see that God met with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, that He went into their home and had fellowship with them. We see that He met with lepers, with those who were unclean. We see that He met with a Samaritan woman at a well. And here in this passage, we see He meets Moses at a mountain called Horeb, which is called later the mountain of God. And we don't know why, but he chose to speak through a bush. And this stands out because of the ordinariness of this bush. Now, it wasn't something that overwhelmed Moses. It says that he saw it and then he had to turn aside to go see what was happening. He saw the bush and it was burning but not being consumed. And he's like, what's going on here? So he goes over to check out this bush. It was something that was not unmistakable, something that he could have passed by. And we also see that God meets him in the midst of him doing just kind of ordinary things. He's shepherding, he's gathering, uh, shepherding his father-in-law's flocks, just doing the things that he was doing every day. And God meets him in that place on that mountain through the bush. And then we'll see later, many years later, God would meet with his people on another hill called Golgotha, in a similar sight that was remarkable and majestic, but also that could be passed by. See, God doesn't just meet us when we're joined together as his body. He meets us in our everyday lights, lives. He meets us in the stillness and quietness of time spent reading his word. He meets us in the midst of loss as we say goodbye to those who we hold dear to. He meets us in the Place of suffering as we deal with debilitating illness or infirmity. He meets us in our sinfulness as we fall into sin once again, and once again we cry out to Him for mercy. He meets us as we serve God's people. He meets us as we care for the least of these, as we care for the poor, the disadvantaged, the orphan, those who are victims of injustice. He meets us as we go about our everyday business, as we go to our jobs, as we go to school, as we're pulling all-nighters, taking exams. He meets us where we're at. And often, the places where He meets us are unexpected. Places where we would never expect to find God. So that's the first principle about meeting with God. He often meets us in unexpected places. The second thing we learn from this passage is that God meets His people with untainted purity. God meets Moses in a flame. Fire in the Old Testament represented God's pure and consuming holiness. I remember, you know, just a, not too long ago, one of our church members had a fire. And I, I went to their house to help them with something. And uh, this fire had only lasted, you know, not very long. I don't, I don't remember exactly the amount of time it lasted, but, you know, maybe 20 minutes or a half hour. And so I remember pulling into the driveway and seeing the house. And I, From the outside, it's like, oh, it doesn't look like that much damage. You know, it wasn't that long that the fire was going on. Then I walked into the front door, and it looked like a war zone. The whole inside of the house was just torn to shreds by these flames. And God is described as being a fire, a consuming fire. Someone who is so holy and so mighty that that sin in His presence is just consumed. That His enemies just melt before Him. Deuteronomy 4, verse 23 to 24 says, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which He made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Isaiah 33, verse 14 says, The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? So God tells Moses, Don't come near to me. Take off your sandals. The place that you're standing is holy ground. And the place that he's standing is holy ground because God is there. And this was something that was common in the ancient Near East when people would enter into the presence of a temple or a deity. They would often take the sandals off their feet to remove any contaminants from coming into the holy place. So God tells Moses, Take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. It says in the text that Moses hid his face because he didn't want to see the face of God. To see the face of God was to literally be consumed by his glory. See, Moses wasn't just talking to a little bush, God was meeting with him in that bush. And as he was talking, it was a terrifying sight to be in the presence of the holy God who is a holy other, who is eternal, who is perfect in all of his ways. And to be in the presence of someone so holy and so pure, it can be overwhelming. And that same God that spoke to Moses in the bush that said, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground, that same God is the God that we serve. A God who dwells in inapproachable light, who's a consuming fire. But I think our culture, and even in Christian circles, we've kind of tried to domesticate God. We've kind of tried to make God into our buddy or pal. Now we have different levels of relationships, and I have some people that, you know, I might call buddies or pals, and we, you know, maybe do things together, maybe play sports together, hang out a little bit we're not really that close of friends. And, you know, if I needed something, I probably wouldn't go to them. They wouldn't be the first people that I would go to. And if they needed something for me, they probably wouldn't ask it for me. Because kind of, we just kind of hang out. We just kind of do things together. We're not really that much of friends. There's no commitment involved. There's nothing required on the part of either party. And I think that that's how many people view God, that He's almost like a buddy. He's a pale. He's someone that we like, that we can come to when we need something, but someone that doesn't demand anything of us. Someone who can, we can just show up, hang out with. Now certainly, because of Christ's blood, we can enter boldly into the presence of God. Certainly that, that's the case. But let's not forget whose presence we're entering into. Let's not forget how great and how glorious our God is. Now, let's not forget that we're entering into the presence of a consuming fire who just at the snap of His fingers could wipe us out of existence. Just like it says in 1 Peter. It says about God being our Father. But our Father is the one who judges the living and the dead. And so, When we meet with God, it's a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing. We experience His love, but it's also a terrifying thing because we know how great and how mighty and how powerful He is. So that's the second principle about meeting with God. That God meets us with untainted purity. Third thing, that God often meets us, meets His people with unimaginable plans. Now, I think that the way that God interacts with Moses, I find it pretty humorous. He comes to Moses and he says, I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard what's going on. I know their situation. I've seen the injustice. And I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to lead this people from slavery into freedom. I'm going to bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And I can just imagine in Moses' heart that he's saying, Yes, Lord. This is what I've been waiting for. All this time I've been waiting for this. Back when I was in Egypt, I saw this injustice. I saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And I killed this Egyptian trying to fix this situation. I just, But it just made things worse. And I've seen this injustice. And I wanted to do something about it, but I couldn't. So I'm so happy that you're coming to do this. And then God says to him, Now you go to Pharaoh and lead my people out of Egypt. You go to Pharaoh. It's like, what do you mean? Did I mishear something? In case you didn't remember, I didn't leave Egypt on the best of terms. Remember, I just I killed somebody, and Pharaoh was trying to kill me, and I ran for my life. And remember how I didn't even fit in with my own people, the Israelites? I mean, I thought they would at least be happy for what I did, but they're like, Who made you a judge over us? And now you are gonna send me back to Egypt, to lead your people out of slavery? How am I going to do that? I'm not the person for the job. See, when we meet with God, He often asks us to do impossible things. Things that we think are just unimaginable, that are crazy. Maybe we're praying that God would reach our neighbors with the gospel. Maybe we're praying that He would reach our our community with the gospel. And maybe He speaks to us and says... Yes, I'm going to do that. Now you go and share my love with your neighbor. Or maybe we're praying for the orphans of the world or victims of injustice, like victims of sex trafficking or slaves. And God is like, yes, I'm going to free them. Yes, I'm going to reach them. And I want you to go and share my love with them. Or maybe we're reading God's word. And God convicts us of something that we're doing that's wrong. Maybe we find ourselves into an addiction or a pattern of sin. And maybe we've tried to stop doing it over and over again. We keep falling back to it and God is like, I need you to stop. I need you to take this first step. I need you to rely on me to fix this. God often asks us to do impossible things for His glory. And he often doesn't give us neat plans about how it's going to work out. I mean, he comes to Moses and says, lead my people out of Egypt. That's the first thing he says. And he's like, how am I going to do that? And there's all these questions that are running through his mind. I mean, I don't really get along with Egyptians anymore. I don't really get along with the Israelites anymore. How is all of this going to transpire? And then God gives them a little bit of what's happening, about what the, uh, how it's going to happen. But still, even in that, he's like, well... Pharaoh's not going to listen to you at first. and I'm going to have to show forth my mighty hand to bring, them, bring you guys out of Egypt. And there's so many unanswered questions. And this, Moses would like to have this neat, tidy plan. Okay, what's going to happen? Why are they, How are they going to believe me? Well, how is Pharaoh going to believe me? What signs are you going to do? But God only gives him one step of obedience that he has to take. And we see that a lot of times in Scripture. We saw it with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Where God tells Abraham, go from the land, go from your homeland and go to the land that I will tell you. How long? Where? Which land? Exactly, why am I going to this land? God doesn't give him any of those, the answers to those questions. He just says, Go to a land that I will tell you. He often meets his people with unimaginable plans. Finally, final principle for the way that God meets with His people is God meets His people with unfailing promises. After Moses questions his ability to bring God's people out of Egypt, God responds by giving Moses an incredible promise. Moses is like, how am I going to do this? Who am I that I would lead your people out of Egypt? And God says, but I will be with you. That's the one promise in Scripture that makes all the difference. That God would be with Moses. That God would do through Moses something that was impossible in Moses' own strength. That Moses would be able to do things that were impossible. God gives Moses the gift of his presence. That he would be the driving force behind his ministry, behind his life. And the truth is, Jesus gives us the same promise. In the Scriptures. In Matthew 28, verses 18-20, to Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here is the promise that He gives us. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He gives us, gives Moses the promise of his presence, That's the fuel to do things that are impossible in our own strength. And then God tells Moses to go and gather the Israelite elders together. And Moses says, well, if I do that, and I say, well, God has appeared to me. And they say, well, who's God? Well, who should I say that your name is? What, what is your name that I should give to them? And then God says to him, he says, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And then he tells Moses his proper name, which is Yahweh. In the text, in verse 15, it's uh, just capitalized as the Lord. That's the word Yahweh. And the word Yahweh is a word that we don't know exactly what it means. Uh, part of the reason was because they had such a holy reverence for the name that they got rid of the vowels. But it was it's built upon the word for to be. So it's in some way related to uh, this saying, "I am who I am, or I will be who I will be," so it's some form of that. And in the ancient world, when someone would be named, it was a very important you know, kind of thing to have, you know, be named. And uh, somebody's name would kind of provide a snapshot for a person's life. That would kind of encapsulate who they are and what they were about. For example, Abraham means to the father of many. And Abraham was, of course, the father of many, that he would become a great nation. Remember, Jacob, his name meant supplanter, that he would always be trying to supplant his brother. The name Moses uh, likely means something like to draw, because he was drawn out of the water. So Moses is like, how do I encapsulate who you are? How do I tell people all that you're about? And God is like, you can't. You can't encapsulate all that I am. He says, I am who I am. I'm Yahweh. The One who was. The One who is. The One who is to come. There's no no word, no description that can encapsulate all that I am. In Revelation 1, verse 8, it says, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the One who spoke the worlds into existence, the One who was and is and is to come, the One who came to the earth as a baby, who lived a sinless life, died on the cross and rose again, He gives us the unfailing promise as believers that He is with us, that He'll never leave us, that He'll never forsake us. And because of that promise, it changes everything. It gives us fuel for living life. It gives us fuel for ministry, for serving others. Famous evangelist Luis Palau shares a story about how God met with him as he was interacting with this passage and listening to a message on this passage. He says, During my first year at Multnomah School of the Bible, Torchbearers founder, Major Ian Thomas, spoke at our chapel service. He talked about how it took Moses 40 years in the wilderness to learn that he was nothing. Then one day Moses was confronted with the burning bush. Likely a dry bunch of ugly sticks. Yet Moses had to take off his sandals. Why? Because God was in the bush. Major Thomas said God was telling Moses, I don't need a pretty bush or an educated bush or an eloquent eloquent bush. Any old bush will do as long as I'm in the bush. If I'm going to use you, it won't be you doing something for me, but me doing something through you. He says, I was that kind of bush. A useless bunch of dried up sticks. I could do nothing for God. All of my reading reading and studying and modeling myself after others was worthless unless God was in the bush. Only He could make something happen. When Thomas closed his message, I ran to my room and in tears prayed in my native Spanish. My spiritual struggle was finally over. I'd let God be God and let Luis be dependent upon Him. God often meets us in unexpected places. He meets us as we're living our lives, as we're walking through suffering. And He meets us in untainted purity. When we get a glimpse of how great He is, it causes us a holy reverence and even a holy fear. And He often brings us plans that are impossible. That on the surface, we would just say, that's insane. How in the world could I do this? Yet God promises His presence. He promises that He'll be with us every step of the way. And if He is with us, nothing can be against us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You that You are ever willing to meet with us. That as believers, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That we can call out to You as Your children whenever we are in need. And Lord, we just... Thank you for your love for us. And we thank you for the promise of your presence. We thank you that you choose to do things that are impossible in our own strength, that you choose to do those things through us. Lord, as we live our lives as Christians, Lord, we just pray that we would be faithful to you to take the first step of what you call us to do, trusting that you're with us and that you're guiding every step of the way.